For August 15th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 163, Jelly of the Month Club. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I am Matthew Rather, here with the panel and special guest... Zach from Kingdom of Loathing. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're very glad to have you. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's uh, it was a blast last time, so you know there's nowhere to go but down. That's the way I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what. That's what. She, never mind. Um, well, we'll get to uh, we'll get to all kinds of things. I, I should say Zach from Kingdom of Loathing, also the ho- uh, known as Jick, right on on the uh, Kingdom of yes. Loathing universe, and also the host of. Um, uh, also the host of Advice Hot Dog, uh, the po- podcast which I subscribe to him and I'm a big fan of, and Video Games Hot Dog. Well, the co-host. Roy, Roy wouldn't like it if you called me the host. We're, we're equals in it. Fair Although he right now is downstairs playing Parappa the Rapper on the PS2 that my girlfriend asked me if she could hook up. <laughs> That's the kind of question you want to get from your girlfriend. Oh, sure, sure. Do, yeah, exactly. Do you mind if I hook up this PS2 here? Um, the... Uh, Wow, that's well. I I'm a big fan of Roy and of you on that show. And uh, if you have questions, you should send them to uh, to Advice Hot Dog. And you have a great Google Voice number, which is like Roy something 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 Zach, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, we tried tried to come up. We tried to find a vulgar one. We spent a lot of time trying to come up with something that was that was funny that we could still say with a straight face, but uh, ended up with just our names. I wonder what area code that is, and I wonder if people get weird wrong number calls in that area code yeah google voice has really changed the way that whole thing works you, nobody has any idea what area code their phone number is in anymore no for sure well it started it started with the cell phones like all the people who got cell phones in college because i think we were right around the time when people were getting cell phones in college and um and uh everyone kept their number right no one changes their number when they go to a new city yeah anyway My, uh my guys have uh, cell phone numbers from all over the place. The ones who the ones who moved here to to work here. So it's uh, it's a weird thing. It's always weird when you when you get somebody who's not really on the ball and they're taking down your information at a store or whatever, and they you give them the area code and they start putting it in the wrong field, and then everything gets all confused. Oh my, uh, <laughs> I got my cell phone in Connecticut. My uh, my phone number is, uh, starts with two zero three, like the number for this uh, show, but. Uh, it, out here in Los Angeles, there's a big area code which is two one three, and so I keep saying two o three, no two one three, no two o three, two one three, and it becomes like an Abbott and Costello routine. I should say, by way of vulgar phone numbers, ours for this show is twenty eat log zero one, um, <laughs> which I don't I don't say it that way anymore because Jordan convinced me it wasn't sensitive and that I you know I didn't want to like hurt someone's. Uh, feeling like eaters of log or something like that. As a listener, I never was able to figure out quite who that was insensitive to, or or what uh, in in what way it was vulgar enough to not uh, to not say. I I think that log eating is an is a noble pursuit, and I I don't want to like I don't want log eaters to feel like their their uh, endeavors are are trivialized by our phone number. But it's it's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. If you ever want to leave a voicemail, which no one ever does, but you know what people do now is text. Text us um, haikus mostly, which is the kind of text I prefer to get. Anyway, let's jump in with the uh, the question of the week. Um, we will save you the honorary position of going last, Zach. Uh, the question of the week, in honor of Glee the movie, which I'm the only one who saw, I think, um, in honor of the uh, concert film of Glee, what television show, uh, who's ca- which cast of a television show would you like to have record a live uh, concert movie and sing and you know dance and do all the live concert stuff and have it uh, and 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 you would go to see live in concert. Um, first up, answering the uh, answering question. Uh, sometimes he, he he was a little late tonight because of a train delay, and all I could say <laughs> to him was, "Sometimes you run the train, sometimes the train runs you." It's Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going, Matt? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So I thought about this long and hard, and I, I came to the decision that what I really want to see is uh, Kenny Powers live in concert. I want to see Eastbound and Down, the movie musical, in 3D. Uh, are you familiar with Eastbound and Down? No, I'm not. Can you tell us oh, about it? It's a great show. It's a great show. It's heading into its third season, which is going to be its last season. It's um, 
It's about a former major league baseball star who uh, who like sort of burns out and has to move home with like his uh, his his family, like his his like brother's family, like out in the burbs, and like he thinks he's this big hot shot. And he has like a leopard skin uh, um, uh, jet ski that he like tows around in the back of his truck, but it's very it, it doesn't really mesh well with his his work as like a gym teacher and other things along those lines. And it's uh, Kenny Powers is played by Danny McBride of uh, such wonderful films as. Um, Tropic Thunder, Pineapple Express, uh, you know, gosh, I mean, Land of the Lost, I suppose. He's, I think he's one of the bad guys in Kung Fu Panda 2. He's a very funny man, and I'd like to, I think, the part of the joke of it is, of course, he would steal every number, because he's the most dominating personality in the show by, like, a fair margin. Uh, and, and everybody else, it, there's a lot of, like, everyone else is the straight man kind of situations that are worked into the, uh, worked into the plot line. Uh, oh, the upcoming movie, Your Highness, stars him. So you know that he's, uh, uh, you know, performative and flamboyant in certain in certain ways. I don't think that movie is upcoming. I think that movie is... Uh, yeah, that, that, movie, that movie has come and gone. Only if you think of time as linear man. All right? Like, time is like... Never mind. It's a joke. It's a stoner movie. Never mind. <laughs> uh, but that, that movie is gone already. Jeez, that's unfortunate. I had a passing interest in knowing when that was going to be in the theaters. Not necessarily in watching it, but just being aware of it and cherishing every spare brief moment that it was going to be live in front of paying audiences. Um, Excellent yeah. choice. Excellent choice from Peter Fenzel. And that was the voice. Those were the dulcet tones of uh, John Parrish. John, glad to have you. What up? All right. So the TV series that I would most like to see made into a concert movie is the 1979 BBC miniseries Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, an adaptation of the John le Carre novel of the same name, starring, among others, Alec Guinness, uh, Ian Richardson, I- Ian Bannon, who was also in Braveheart, although in a lot of leprosy makeup there and much older, so people probably wouldn't recognize him, and a bunch of other excellent uh, excellent British actors like Bernard Hepton, George Sewell, among them, who uh, would probably put on a, a charming little musical ditty about, uh, I don't know, about conflicting intelligence and secret loyalties and stealing, you know, government reports and things along those lines. It would be very quaint and sort of provincial and parochial, and then there'd be a big, splashy finale with fireworks and 3D explosions. That is fantastic. You know, there were fireworks. There's a guy credited as the, like, the, uh, you know, pyrotechnics guy on the, the Glee concert movie. Um, I, I know this because I watched all the, the credits. Of course there is. Like, if there were pyrotechnics, there'd be a guy credited for doing them. I, um, I, <laughs> yeah, and, uh. Whoo, let's see. Mine, uh, mine is, I've, I've recently begun to watch the, um. I have recently begun to watch the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation television series through from season one, episode one. Oh, so, it's quite good. I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's a good television show. I mean, again, rewatch. Again, for the no. first time. Yeah. It, it seems like the first time because I was, what, seven when that show came out? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't remember a lot, of, a lot of these things. And I certainly, like, I certainly didn't pick up on the constant sexual tension between uh, Crusher and Picard, you know, when I was, <laughs> when I was seven or eight. But it's, um, I, I found some interesting things about it, which is that, like, it, the, the kind of aspect of melodrama was, the edge of melodrama was a lot less blunted in its early years, uh, you know, than it was later. They, they, like, they feel like they need to manufacture stakes with... I, I don't know, like long zooms. There are like zooms in this show. And the zoom is a camera move that, that really ought to be banished from the, the lexicon. The quick zoom, I mean, ought to be banished from the lexicon. It's like, you know, like, uh, we've, you know, we've only got five minutes to save the Enterprise you know, yeah. <laughs> with a zoom in between. It's, you know. Well, the original series have all those great tight shots of Shatner sweating. Right, where it's like, oh, I'm so stressed out. Oh, man, I'm on a spaceship. Oh, jeez. Huffing. Oh, yeah. Huffing and sweating. But I would like to see that as a, as a concert film. I would like to see the, uh, the cast of, of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, though not as they are now, uh, as they were in 1987 or 8, when they were sort of young and dewy. Um, and they all, maybe it's that I'm older. They all, when I was a kid, of course, they all looked like grown-ups because grown-ups was this huge monolithic category that didn't have a ton of variance within it. Uh, but now that, you know, now I see that there are like, 
there are old grown-ups and younger grown-ups. And uh, Wesley Crusher looks like a 12-year-old. Uh, Will Wheaton was, I don't know how old he was when they started that show, but he, he looks like that. But I would like to see them do some, like, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan or something like that. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like a, or like a concert performance, a concert performance of a Stephen Sondheim thing. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. Patrick Stewart is Sweeney Todd. Or, or. <laughs> well, I have a treat for you. Check out the old album, Old Yellow Eyes is Back. Uh, which Have you ever heard this album? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I bought this album during my shopping spree after the death of Sh- Frank Sinatra when I went to the Tower Records on Route 17 South in New Jersey and, uh, and bought a whole bunch of Frank Sinatra albums. And this Brent Spiner, Old Yellow Eyes is Back album, was, uh, was sitting there with them. Someone thought it was kind of a cruel joke to put it there. But yeah, it's like a series of Tin Pan Alley classics like uh, Embraceable You and uh, like Caroline, Carolina in the Morning and stuff. And uh, on the song... Uh, Toot, toot, tootsie. You oh, know, it's the song It's a Sin to Tell a Lie. Uh, LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn, Jonathan Frakes, and Patrick Stewart all sing backup vocals. <laughs> it's, just, it's basically Data singing an album. And uh, it's like not very Star Trek themed uh, unless you look on the inside of the liner notes. Endgame. But, uh, Sha-la-la-la-la-la, Data. Sha-la-la-la-la-la. Do-op, do-op, Data. Endgame. Marvelous. I know. It's, well, it's, it's wonderful. Like you, I think you were, I, you were the one who pointed out that... Um, the, the use of classically trained British and American actors in, in Star Trek does lead to some of the greatest uh, enunciation, you know? Like, <laughs> the, the final plosives are so, are so crisp, you know? Like, yeah. Uh, well, my, my friends and I... Oh, wait, wait. Is there a particular reference you want to make specifically? To no, I don't know. I was just thinking... I mean, it's not a plosive, but I was thinking, like, engage! Where the final <laughs> G is so uh, is so audible and so you know well articulated, or uh, Avery Brooks like uh, fire, you know, yeah, <laughs> such a Avery Brooks is the best. Is he British? Is Avery Brooks British? No, he's American, isn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. Because we always used to, to call him like the world's greatest enunciator, <laughs> right? Because he like he's the one who had the commercials that was like. Um, when you realized that babies weren't delivered by storks, that was an epiphany, right? And that was his, like, uh, I think it was at AT&T, doing commercials for them. But there's a, there's a great line in one of the uh, Star Trek DC9 uh, episodes where he goes, like, uh, there's an old saying that says fortune favors the bold. Let's hope they're right. And he, like, hit every, every single consonant, like, so hard. The, uh, the enunciating fan in me was just over a barrel. It was... Uh, like, you know, some people are really fans of really specific things. And if you're a fan of enunciation, I recommend looking at the work of Avery Brooks. Elocution and enunciation. Exactly. Look at the work of Avery Brooks. He's an American actor, born 1948. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, American actor, says Wikipedia, jazz musician, opera singer, and college professor. Whoa. Yes. Is that just on the holodeck or is that like in real life? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, is that uh, is that honor? Is that the honorary doctorate? Um, <laughs> Rutgers. He went to uh, Rutgers for the MFA. So he studied uh, with. I don't know if she was there at the time, but uh, Rutgers is the home of Edith Skinner and the Speak with Distinction system of uh, of actor training, actor voice training. So uh. um, so there you go. Uh, hey Zach, we come around to you in the honored position as the last, uh, as the last, which is actually kind of riding bitch because all the good ones are taken by the time we get. Oh, to but it, oh. <laughs> uh, you're right. I, I actually had to rewrite mine in my head after each of you spoke because uh, you each took you each took my first, second, and third ideas in turn. Really? Uh, what I arrived at was uh, was uh, Cheers, and, uh. and so you end up with uh, so something like Buffy that that does do the the musical, but they do it fairly late in the game, uh, sort of to force everybody to watch the entire series just so that they understand the one the the one episode that you just have to see, but isn't going to make sense if you haven't seen the rest of it. Uh, I guess also like the puppet episode of Angel, which is supposedly really good, but re- would require me to watch all of Angel if I was going to get to it. So Cheers has this well-established enough characters that you can give them each a song. And and you have a you have a big a big sort of body of experience with this character to go back on. So say Clavin does the really long uh, modern major general style rapid fire just facts and figures kind of song. Uh, uh, what I forget what Ted Danson's character is it Sam Sam something. He can rock the sort of like Justin Timberlake like self-aggrandizing bringing sexy back kind of thing. Just a song about how great he is and how much the ladies like him. 
somebody reveals something surprising about themselves, like, yeah, you know, maybe Woody knows something about some traditional music from some culture that nobody's ever heard of and, and does, a, does a number there. But the piece de resistance is when Lilith, uh, Fraser Crane's girlfriend or wife, uh, reveals that in college she was actually a uh, Laurie Anderson-style performance artist and does just a, a, a kind of inscrutable 20-minute uh, tape loops and a megaphone into a microphone, into a microwave kind of crazy <laughs> experimental piece that just blows it, away. That's awesome. Well, that's because um, it's B.B. Newirth, right? Who is a marvelous musical performer in her own right, right? So, oh, I didn't even—I didn't know that. I just uh, I, the, the picture I have in my head of Laurie Anderson is actually her. I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> Excellent. Um, good, cho- good choices. All I would uh, see all of those movies as I saw the Glee movie, which we'll talk about in just a second. But I want to break in with a little bit of news. Um, the first is, uh, is that we announced in the open thread on Friday that, uh, for the first time, we are going to meet up with overthinkers from all over the tri-state area uh, in, uh, in the first ever Overthinking It meetup, which will take place in New York City. New York, New York, uh, on August 24th, that's a Wednesday, and we're going to roll up uh, at about 9 p.m. to the Tribeca Tavern and Café. Uh, if you want some information about that and how you can meet all of your uh, favorite New York-based overthinkers and me, who will be visiting for the week, uh, you can uh, go to the Overthinking It Facebook page, which is at uh, facebook.com slash overthinkingit, and also read, um, <laughs> read the Facebook page. It's actually pretty lively, uh, <laughs> despite its complete and total neglect by us. Uh, there are some great comments, and people get into good... Uh, good uh, uh, stuff in the comments there. So, uh, yes, um, overthinking it. New York City meetup Wednesday, August 24th. And, hey, uh, who knows? I'll have my recording gear. So if you've ever wanted to be on an overthinking it podcast, maybe we could do a question or something and go around the bar asking people the answer to the question. I don't know. Maybe there's a better way to do it than that. Hey, <laughs> who knows? You guys are uh, opening up a can of worms here that you may wish had remained closed. Just uh, just letting you know. Once you start uh, getting getting your Internet people gathered together in one place, things can get weird in a hurry. Yeah. Like how, we've got our, uh, we've actually got our eighth annual, uh, eighth annual Kingdom of Loathing convention uh, coming up. The, the tickets are on sale right now. If you uh, if you look at the front page at kingdomofloathing.com. Uh, if you're if you're local to Phoenix, it's worth coming out because it's uh, it's it's pretty fun. But the the first Kingdom of Loathing get together was just at the house that I was living in at the time, and there were about a dozen people there, and that has since uh, spiraled out into this sort of institution that we have here now, and. Uh, it's weird. I had never really participated in any online communities until until the one that I ended up making by accident, and uh, gets you know it's it's strange. There there I don't know if you guys will have the like one guy just in the back of the bar on his laptop playing World of Warcraft, the way that we saw <laughs> at, our, at our gatherings. I, I came here so I could not talk to anybody. Yeah. That, what is the programming like at the Kingdom of Loathing convention? Uh, you know, we actually, uh, it's, it, it's evolved a little bit over time, but we've started doing a concert. Uh, we usually have, uh, nerdcore rapper MC Frontalot is, uh, actually as a result of playing at these, uh, at these things has kind of become a friend of mine. And, uh, we also have the, uh, local band, the mini bosses who are these guys that do, uh, really guitar heavy covers of NES, uh, era theme songs. Actually, I think specifically NES theme songs. I've seen him, I've seen him track these things and he literally takes the data from, NES ROMs and just all right. This is this is me. This is the other guitarist. This is the drums. Um, we do like a barbecue. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people sitting around playing board games and getting drunk. That's uh, that's pretty much so it. It's, it's not a, it's not a convention with like panels or something like that. Or do you have a whole like programming track like a keynote? Do you give a do you give a like a State of the Kingdom address? No, they, they they usually make me get on stage for uh, for a minute or two and introduce the bands. I guess last year we recorded one of our podcasts. Uh, well, I say I say that it didn't actually get recorded. So we did a uh, we did a once in a lifetime podcast. For, there's only a couple hundred people that show up. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I say only that it, that still blows my mind that they went from this this like ten people showing up at my house to to a couple hundred people. How at this far thing. away do they travel from? 
I mean, I, a lot of them maybe are local to Phoenix or Mesa or something like that. Some, but yeah, some. I mean, there there are a lot of people who've gotten. You know, people don't necessarily like people play a Kingdom of Loathing for the game, but they they stick around for one another. You know, it's it it, it like like all sort of persistent online things it becomes more of a vehicle for people to just sort of build communities and interact with them so it's people i mean there are a significant number of people who come in from england every year um that you know there are people who 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 go out of their way to thread thread our convention into into trips it uh, it, it is a convention in the sense of people convening it is not a it is not a convention in the modern sense where we have speakers and stuff you know it's it's really just kind of a bunch of people hanging out Excellent. nominally under kol's banner and that's the uh, that's on the homepage. That's on the KOL yep. homepage. Sure is. Awesome. Uh, the more things we can plug, the better. Um, I I don't think ours will be a couple of uh, a couple of people. I think the uh, the Facebook RSVPs stand at three now, and that's that's mostly us. Uh, that's mostly the writers. So maybe we'll have drinks together like we always do when we're uh, when we're hanging out. But um, you know, so hey, we would love to uh, we would love to have you there for that. Uh, and then I, I just want to say that next week's episode of the Overthinking It podcast is going to be a very special episode uh, where we discover that uh, I had um, some kind of bizarre affliction all along. No, uh, a, very, a very special episode where I am mugged at knife point and have to surrender my wallet. And I no, uh, a very special episode of the Overthinking It <laughs> podcast where we... Um, uh, where we are all going to be in the same room. Since I'm headed to the East Coast, a uh, bunch of the overthinking writers are going to be in the same room at the same time next weekend. And, my God, we're going to uh, record a podcast. And the, the, uh, a lot of the guys who are going to be there are going to have their girlfriends with them. So we, uh, we're, we're thinking of doing either a second podcast or a second layer to the podcast that involves the girlfriends. So that may be too, uh, that may be too sophisticated for the portable report- recording equipment that I... Uh, I'm going to take with me across the country. But, um, yep, so uh, exciting things, exciting times uh, next week on Overthinking It. In fact, you should probably just uh, stop listening uh, and and pick up next. No, I'm I'm kidding. We're going to talk about um, all uh, all kinds of things. But, Pete, you, you said you saw the finale of uh, So You Think You Can Dance. Um, this uh, uh, this week, uh, how did you end up watching? So you think you can dance because you you uh, and and what did you think of it being a, a sort of a neophyte to it? Oh well, I mean, I've been dating a girl who's a big fan of it, um, and so she introduced me to it. And all all of my sisters, I think, at one point or another, with maybe one exception, did ballet. So I used to watch a lot of dance when I was a, a kid, and, and very begrudgingly so, right? Like, oh, this is nonsense. Blah, blah, blah. And then, like, as I got older, uh, started watching the dance concerts at school and stuff and doing some lighting work to help them out and things like that. But never really a huge part of my life, but, like, a little thing, like, liking to go to dance shows. So I have kind of, like, a passing familiarity with dance, right? Like, enough, enough knowledge of it to uh, – and I do like going out to dance, and I enjoy ballroom dancing and stuff like that. I, I did a little of that for a couple of years when I was younger. Um, did you? Were you in like a cotillion or something? Well, when so in my town, which is kind of in my hometown, kind of an older town in New Jersey, uh, especially on this one part of town, the side of town that I lived on, when you got to seventh grade, I think it was this woman named Mrs. Thompson. Um, would send literally engraved invitations to all the parents of all the upcoming 7th graders, inviting them to ballroom dancing and etiquette classes. Uh, and this is something her mother had done before her for like, you know, 100 years or whatever. I mean, not literally 100 years, but close enough. Um, like literally more than 50 years. Uh, and uh, yeah, so when you go there and the, the boys dress in like khakis and little ties and the girls dress in little dresses. And I mean, the dresses are adequately sized for the women. The women are just small. Um, it's not like they wear little dresses. That would be inappropriate. But um, <laughs> Or an etiquette class, especially. Yeah, exactly. And you learn how to introduce people, how to sit, and like how to foxtrot and cha cha and like waltz and all the all the very basic stuff. A little bit of Lindy Hop was involved, some East Coast swing. Um, and this was before the swing, the great swing revival of like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and the return of Ryan Setzer and all that stuff. Oh, no. Brian Setzer, forgive That's me. Um, I, have a, I have a quick question. Sorry, before we go further. So the. I mean, obviously, the the Lindy Hop and and swing dancing, as you say, has come in some practical use since then. But things like how to seat someone at a at a at a dinner table or something has that. Have you gotten any use out of that in in grown up life? 
Uh, I mean, I make jokes about it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> introducing people in, in a formal way always comes off as kind of ridiculous, right? Because people don't expect it. But I do think it's fun to do what, sometimes. Like, you mean in a formal way, like uh, Mr. Fenzel may I present my friend John Parrish? Well, also the order, right? The uh, the age before youth, like when, so. It's um, you you introduce the women first, and then the men, and you introduce the older women before the younger women. So it goes older women, younger women, older men, younger men in order, um, and that's sort of like the the proper way to introduce everybody who's in a circle, and you without pointing to people, and and kind of acknowledge acknowledge people with your eyes a little bit, and and everybody says hello, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I don't mean like announcing them as they enter into a room like a troubadour. Um, <laughs> Not like Harold. It is, a, it is a little weird. I mean, that 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 just any anything under the banner of manners, it it just seems weird if you're the only person doing it, right? It, like it just seems like you're messing with people instead of instead of trying to do the right thing. I, you know, I, I learned at some point like, okay, you don't start eating until everyone at the table has has been issued their food. But I always just get yelled at by the people who haven't gotten their food yet. Don't don't wait for me to get served to eat. Just eat, and I right. I, stedfa- I steadfastly refuse to do so. But I think it just kind of makes me a jerk instead of instead of that. You know, it's it's one of those things where everyone has to be doing it in order for there to be a context in which it makes sense. Right, right, right. I mean, it comes from a weird through line, right? Because you've got it comes out of you know court behaviors of nobility, right? Uh, and then in which case the social interaction at court is very important because social interaction leads to political influence in a very real way when you're dealing with aristocrats and families and marriages and all that other stuff. Um, and then you have the industrial revolution and all of the clothes, for example, that aristocrats used to be able to wear. Suddenly everybody can wear those kinds of clothes. Right, and suddenly everybody can eat that kind of food, and suddenly everybody can have silverware, right? Which was not something that people generally had. Uh, everybody had back in the Dizay, as it were. So then, come, coming with that is this idea that everybody should have this etiquette that the nobility has had previously, and it's a mark of kind of uh, democratization and kind of mutual respect. You know, that everybody respects each other. We're all human beings, um, you know, and we're all going to pay each other the due respect, except for, of course, like the people that you don't invite to eat with you and, and racial issues and all the other nonsense. <laughs> It's not like, like it's a golden age for equality, right? Like, um, but gonna, within certain constraints, yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate and disagree. Actually, if, if simply because the as you described the, the the formal etiquette of civilized society descends to us from nobility and the time of a more structured aristocracy, but ultimately all of that can can trace back to not specific rules that were ever laid down, but simply best practices that became codified over time with the force of rules. So in other words, because, because you know, at courts like Versailles or, you know, the court of George III or someone like that, where there were just practices that were done like, oh, you know, no one can, you know, no one can laugh at this joke until the king has laughed at the joke first, for instance, or, or something along those lines. And then that just becomes accepted practice as, you know, the next generation of kings wants to uh, emulate and enhance the grandeur of the prior generation and so on and so forth until it's just passed down and has become sort of the force of law without anyone ever really knowing why it became so important in the first place. So to inherit that in a completely non-monarchical society is i'd say it's the i'd say it's the opposite of democratizing it's glor it's glorifying tradition for for no for no useful purpose like there's no there's no particular reason you should you've got to you've got to lay the silverware inside out other than you know it's a it's a convenient well actually that's a bad example because that way it's convenient to know which which fork you should be eating with so that <laughs> that, that is a useful example but Unless it's a source of comfort for the days before there was a McDonald's everywhere and you could always get the same food. At least maybe you always knew when you sat at a table that the salad fork was going to be in the same spot and, and it didn't just shake your world to its foundations and confuse you about you know, who you were and where you were. <laughs> sure. Like that's, that, and that's, that's non-trivial, right? Like we, we think of, like, of the differences between people being largely a matter of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, of, of emphasis or of... I, you know, I, whether you call it a, a Big Mac or a Royale with cheese or a quarter pounder, a quarter pounder or a Royale with cheese, that's the one I meant. Um, but, it's, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a time when, like, traveling was kind of perilous and uh, customs really did differ greatly uh, from place to place. And, um, you know, so the idea of a, the idea of a standardized, uh, 
uh, set of behavior was extremely, uh, I, you know, was extremely important. I mean, probably for safety, or maybe I'm, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm overstating the case. I mean, I could be strawmanning just a little bit, but, but, uh, but you know, it strikes me that things were not always as homogenized as they are now. Yeah, and I think that there also were times when people weren't as comfortable and secure in their persons as to totally let go of the kind of social convention that assured them of like the the protection and the respect of the people around them. I mean, it's a tricky thing to say that uh, a social convention isn't based on anything, right? Because it's it's turtles all the way down, right? Like social conventions. True. In the end, nothing is based on anything, right? And so, I'm not to, not to say that we should dismiss all discussions that are like that, but um you know, at the time the construction might have dictated that this might have been the function that it was serving. Um even if that it turns out in our current way of reasoning and feeling about these things, it seems absurd. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think that – because it's interesting because people who are really enthusiastic about table manners aren't always the people who are the, the people of the most elevated classes. It's often people who um, are anxious about being seen as less than the elevated classes, right, and, and, and insist upon manners as a way of, uh, of avoiding the I'm not avoiding the humiliation because that's not to that degree, but um, as a way of legi- of, uh, of sort of heading off of the past attempts to delegitimize them by people that they think are looking for an opportunity to sure. do so. It's, it, you're talking about people who are very anxious to single to uh, signal group membership in a group yeah. that they aspire to be a part of, and that they may be a part of, but but may not totally. Uh, um, uh, may not totally be uh, entitled to be a part of. You know, yeah. I had an acting teacher once who uh, had grown up in the 40s. And, um, he, and and like many actors, he was a waiter in the 40s. And so he said this. It's, it's, his formulation of it is, is a little bit old-fashioned, but I think you can see kind of what you, what you were talking about, what you are talking about in what he said, which was, uh, uh, you know, as a waiter at a hotel, you could always tell the new money from the old money, you know? Because um, the new money were very anxious about, uh, you know, to be seen as rich and would would kind of order you around and uh, would uh, not tip well, <laughs> right? Whereas the old money would uh, would tip very well and were very sort of gracious because they were they were kind of used to being waited on. And this is, I mean, you know, this is a uh, this is from kind of an earlier time where we don't have we don't have that level, I guess, of. Uh, what of of privilege anymore, or the well, idea, we, uh, the idea of privilege has become democratized to where it's something that is something that you something that anyone can can pay for. But uh, I wonder if it I wonder if it changes over time also because it, at least the way that I see it, class mobility now is more about sort of not letting the man tell you what to do and and having a sort of like entrepreneurial spirit than it is than it is you know putting putting everything in exactly the right place so that somebody will notice how good you are at your job and promote you. Right. I, I mean, I would I would agree in some ways and disagree in others. But anyway, continue. Well, that that was that was pretty much it. I I just, I, I wonder how how much of that is re- reflective of or or you know at least at least correlates with that that kind of decline in that sort of thing seeming important to people. Well, you I mean, on one hand, you have yeah entrepreneurs and people who make a lot of money uh, being uh, inventive and innovative. But on the other hand, you have all the professional tracks that, from a very young age, require you to have very specific commitments to what you're doing, right? So, like, all think of all the kids, like the, you know the, the think of the, all the kids who are taking their SAT prep courses, right? And and, and all the people who are their pre meds, and all the people who are pre- prepping to work in you know different kinds of uh, consultancies and financial stuff, and and all of the different choreographies that they need to go through, and all of the different conformities that they seek out in order to do this and the sense of urgency that they have in doing these things. It's easy for people who um, see the success happening on the more innovative side of things to decry that, but it has real consequences for people, right? And it really will dictate things about how much money they're making and what kind of status they're going to have. Um, yeah, and I and- guess that's true. I mean, I, for, from from where I'm standing, that always seemed like a thing that was very dangerous to trust. And, and, and you know, it, 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 is, it is all a matter of, of personal experience and then just sort of like the, the way that things have gone for me. Um, it, 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 though, it did seem, you know, it, thinking about like uh, Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation, right? That was always sort of my... This is my impression from the culture of what happens when you work really hard and do what the man tells you to do is eventually you get the jelly of the month club and your house burns down. 
Right. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think that there's definitely a truth in the idea that a, that a lot of this, at the end of the, end of the day, you're going to get screwed anyway, regardless. Um, so you might as well live your life authentically. But there's a um, sense, I mean, uh, you know, isn't there a sense now, and I guess there always is a sense that the world is, is going straight to hell and always, always is a sense that like the economy is changing rapidly and, and we don't know what's coming. Um, you know, but it seems like uh, I, I read an article in the in the in the paper a little while ago about what a terrible investment law school, for example, is now, right? Uh, because you end up with uh, you end up with sort of low six figure debt and uh, and bad job prospects at the moment, and so uh, you know so. So at this at this particular time, all those people who are um, right, like all, all those people who 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 did sort of regiment their life in that in that very specific way, and you know d- deny themselves a lot of things and uh, commit themselves to very specific sort of goals and practices in order to what get into uh, get into law school or get into a good law school, one of the expensive ones where you rack up a lot of debt. You know they're all they're all kicking themselves and wishing that they had torrented a book about Objective C, right? Well, Heather, are, are, you, are you telling me something that I've heard before, that there are more lawyers in law school today? <laughs> We're coming out, Kevin. Guns blazing. <laughs> what, 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 I'm saying, uh, what I'm saying is that the invisible hand is an absentee landlord. <laughs> He's a sadist. <laughs> uh, by the way, we're quoting uh, Sense and Sensibility by... <laughs> and, uh, oh, good Lord. Love that devil's advocate action. Um, well, I mean, and this is true for many people, but it isn't true for everybody. Um, in the sense that there is still that carrot out there for some spare few people that people still chase. And I think that it is – I think – I'm not necessarily advocating that you do this with your life, but I do know people who do it. And I do know people who have succeeded at it, and I know people who have succeeded less at it. I know people who have done it one way and switched to the other way, right, who have been very regimented in the way that they pursue their professional lives to the extent that – and this all goes back to courtesy, right? Courtesy is, is really important in, in – uh, and rules of conduct are very important in getting there. And then pe- people who have switched to it – People have switched from it, um, and I would almost say that um, that there are rules of courtesy in our more kind of freewheeling society, right? Like our more freewheeling way of looking at things that are probably just as important, um, but well, not sure. as. I mean, like you know, don't it's. It, again, you have to like look at the level of practices and not necessarily at the level of rules that are in the twentieth edition of some Emily Post book. Like, don't you know? Don't uh, post in the chat room in all caps is a uh, is a courtesy. You know? Yeah. Don't I mean? don't reply to all. You know that kind of thing. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, but I mean, also I think we do have that that fantasy. Unless of you us- have an hilarious attachment of a <laughs> lol cat. <laughs> He can has a cheeseburger. He can. He can. Um, but I think we do. It's like the Ned Stark fantasy, right? This idea that uh, what do you that mean you know. By that? Oh, the, the idea that um, somebody who just knows the right thing to do and is good at what they do, right, and is like is has demonstrably successful and is it kind of has the right beliefs and is a good person and is and is effective. Sure, but, uh, the, but the whole. I mean, a, a lot of Song of Ice and Fire kind of gives the lie to that, and the the people who are successful in Song of Ice and Fire are the people who can kind of uh, who are extremely fluid, like even to the level of kind of name and identity. Uh, oh, this is a different podcast. This is this is a yeah. Well, we'll we'll fill this, this in. This this next into, yeah, this gets into spoilers very, very quickly. Yeah, but, but, I just, uh, but the thing is that, like, the, and even you can see this from the first couple episodes of the show, is that like when he gets to court, you can say all you want about the rules of court being, you know, BS. But if you don't follow them, you're going to get yourself in trouble um, because they're the way that power is dictated and and apportioned. And if you just sort of say like, I don't need this because you know I can do whatever I want uh, because it's because because. Being good at what – being effective, being good, uh, being right is more important than, than being deferential in a specific way or than fitting into the social rules of the people around you. Um, and I mean I, I guess not, it's certainly true that in the real world that almost never works. Well, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that – I think I'm a big fan of the idea that people should follow their own, follow their own star, right? But I think that it, you need to do it with an understanding of the risks that you undertake when you enter into certain circles where people are going to ask you to behave in a certain way. Um, you know what I mean? And that's, that's really what dancing class was all about. <laughs> 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 
to watching So You Think You Can Dance, which wow. is actually way to a put very- a way to put a button on that twenty minute long <laughs> digression. Well, but this is interesting. This is actually very very pertinent because the most interesting thing about So You Think You Can Dance is its collegiality. Um, which is that more than any other reality show I've watched, and probably there's other reality shows, and I hate to call it reality show because really it's a game show. It's like Star Search, right? Um, but it's you know it also falls into this whole American Idol style, you know America's Best Dance Crew style kind of reality show, show slash talent show. <clears throat> Um, everybody is like super duper nice to each other in a very sincere way. And there's this feel to the show that it's kind of a multi-season effort at kind of collective personal growth and that dancing is associated with like growth as an artist and the growth of your sense of your ability to express yourself and express things to each other, um, and there's also there's also a sense of of kind of loyalty to to dance the art form, you know, yeah. and like the idea of promoting dance uh, dance the art form, and what can we do for dance, and what do you do for dance? Yeah, exactly. Like, to, so to give people who haven't watched the show a sense for how this works when the rubber meets the road, you know, you'll have a bunch of situations uh, sessions over the course of an episode where different individuals who are currently competing in the current season come out to dance, and they will dance with people who came in like third, fourth, fifth, sixth in the previous season, right? So there's this idea that once you get into sort of the top 20, you're seen as legitimate, um, and it's expected that you're going to find it easier to get work, that you're going to be welcome it to come back sometimes, maybe, uh, if the occasion calls for it, that, that, you, um, that, that this isn't about the winner of the show, right? It, it's about finding the people who have this talent and this capacity for growth that you want to nurture through the course of this competition that sort of has to happen necessarily and that we don't really – we aren't really against, but we want to make sure we do it kindly. And they all – yeah, and they're always – I mean they always have like – well, it is a competition. It is a game show, but I don't like – I don't like eliminating people. Like, I, you know, this yeah. is such a tough job, you know. Um, yeah. Like, do you think uh, that has something to do with – I don't know, maybe with the particularities of the art form itself. Because when you think about things like modeling, for instance, it's it's reputed and also pretty well documented that the world of, say, high-stakes modeling is very cutthroat and very competitive, and that people who are competing for a, a particular photo shoot or a particular role can be very catty to each other. I like, I like high-stakes modeling. It's like, you know, there's a two-purge ante at this table. <laughs> well, there was, there has been some cattiness uh, around. So you think you can dance? In the sense, I think there was. Gosh, was it a podcast? I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but um, girl, I was even talking about it. Uh, was that there were a bunch of New York dancers, right, from like the Metropolitan Ballet and such, who held some sort of you know session where they. It was uh, uh, Pete. That was in no less a, a media organ than the New York Times. Oh, uh, where they did yeah. an arts. They did an arts article where a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of uh, n- like New York dancers, New York ballet dancers, talked talked uh, poop about. So you think <laughs> you can? So you think you can dance? And they actually mentioned it. They, you know, they mentioned it on the show. Um, and the uh, you know uh, with with a kind of incredulity that like how could they doubt our goodwill or how could they doubt the, the you know the talent of the. Um, how could they doubt the talent of the people who are there? But, you know, I don't know. With New York anything, New York X is always a special case of X. You know what I mean? Because of the... Oh, man. I, I hate to say it, but I just came from a New York X, and I can totally tell you about that. I don't mean to be mean about it, but there are differences. Um, I just came from the Del Close Improv Marathon, where I performed on Friday night um, with my old group, Shay's Rebellion. And, I mean, You're, I love... Uh, uh, yeah. not, not your old group, Uniprov? No, Uniprov has been decommissioned ever since our horrible, horrible accident, um, which we're not going to get into. Uniprov, but, uh, Uniprov just so that in, in case you don't get our very inside baseball reference, was the all unicycle improv troupe, uh, of which yes. our, our friend Pete Fenzel was a founding member. Yeah, yeah. it was great. Terrible idea. I can't believe you guys did that. It would have been a better idea if we wore helmets. It would have been a wonderful <laughs> idea if we wore helmets. And, uh, I love that idea. And they got, I just, but it's like, this is the testament to the power of a high concept. They got into some, like, to some very well-known festival with a picture of a guy, like, standing, standing at sunset on top of a rock holding a unicycle over his head. And the tagline, it, you know, something like, Pete, really correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, it's everything you imagine and more. Oh, no, no. It was Uniprov, it is what you think. <laughs> 
And then, uh, <laughs> then, the, then the description of our act was like, it will fulfill all your dreams and fantasies, and it's everything you imagined and more, and all that other stuff. Um, and that was before we even knew how to unicycle. That was the whole thing. We didn't know how to unicycle. We sent in the joke. Um, this is Eric Mill sent it in, who's awesome. Eric Mill, the man who invented isitchristmas.com. So any of those websites that just say yes or no when you log into them, uh, he's like the grandfather of those websites. He was the only one who knew how to unicycle. And then Manny Hernandez, who's a Chicago-based improviser now, and Brian Perry, who's here in Boston and is moving out to moves out moving out to Chicago sometime soon with his wife and child. Um, but yeah, but um, but the 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 idea, and we we didn't know how to unicycle. We got into the festival. This was the Del Close Festival, the marathon that I just came from uh, a few years ago, and uh, we decided to train and learn. Right, and we never really got that good at it, but we got good enough at it to create some entertainment. Um, but the New York improv scene is very different from the improv scene in a lot of other places. Well, you're I mean uh, you're a Boston yeah, sort of. Uh, and you're a sort of eminence Greece, aren't you? And like the Boston improv community and that you direct and you like, you mentor uh, groups and you, you know, you coach other, you coach other people. You're one of the people that people turn to for advice. Not that you're the leader of it or anything. You know, I don't mean to like, I, I sorry, I don't mean to puff you up or, or make it seem like you're puffing yourself up, self up, but, uh, you know, but you, you're heavy into that community. And so you know about it and, and, yeah. uh, and so, the, New York, can you characterize the difference between the community that you're in and, and the like the the New York X? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can it can do it in a lot of ways, and it's different from the whole modeling thing. But it's like, um, like for example, uh, when I was at the Del Close Marathon, I was watching a show at like four in the morning, four to five in the morning, um, actually four to five thirty in the morning, because uh, the marathon goes all night. And then, and there was an act. Uh, it was like to catch a predator prop that they do every year at like four thirty in the morning during this improv festival, where like people where like people walk in and like characters walk in in succession and like and and make a play for this. Uh, child who's played by an adult in like underoos or whatnot and uh chris hansen in a wig you know a guy in a wig comes out as chris hansen and delivers a one-liner and then like takes him away right and it's a thematic one-liner so it'd be like hey you, you fisherman why don't you put your rods down over there if they're fishermen like something like that um by the end of it but there I, was a but i will make you fishers of men oh <laughs> hate mail podcasted over but by the end of it there was a guy who literally peed in a bottle and drank his own urine on stage there was a lot of men in speedos and like other kinds of underpants coming around. There was a heavy metal show, improv heavy metal later, which was a lot of fun, but it involved a lot of dudes like taking their shirts off and running around on stage. Um, that was kind of stuff is not really we not really play in, in the in the Boston scene. Um, it's very different because there's this there's this sense that it's a lot. I don't know exactly how to characterize why it's like that, um, but uh, but for us we have a lot more women relative to the number of men as performers I think is one factor. Um, there's this sense of being part of the bohemian artistic alter- like alter- alternative artistic scene I guess like sort of like hardcore hipster scene. Whereas we're kind of like a comedy niche, you know. It's a little bit different in that sense. Um, and just this yeah. Part of it may also be just the the volume of New York as a as a population and as a as center for education, money, media interest, etc., just sort of churns things so rapidly that an idea has to be fresh and bizarre and weirdly original or else it's just not going to find a, find a platform. It's yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, you're doing a slightly modified Herald. Oh, all right, let me, let me see which one of the seven variations that my friends are in. I can see of that this week. Oh, okay, great, next. Yeah. I think that might be it. I think it might be that in in New York, and this might be the common thread that runs through the different kinds of phenomena you see. You have to do so much to get noticed in that crew. It's not enough to be a grinder. I mean, I would I would characterize myself in improv in Boston as like a grinder, as somebody who just like keeps doing shows, keeps doing stuff, learns things, gets better. But like, you know, I'm not one of the. I'm by no means one of the senior people at my theater. Um, but. Uh, Although you should come see uh, 1.21 Gigawatts, the Back to the Future improv show that I'm directing, that's premiering in September 2nd, that I'm very, very fond of. But, um, but yeah, no, definitely. If you have to do so much to get noticed, it kind of changes uh, the amount of time and energy that you have to dedicate to people who are kind of um, like 
up and coming in a very kind of sincere, wide-eyed way. Like, like if the people in So You Think You Can Dance, you know, if somebody comes in and is just not good enough to be like in the Metropolitan Ballet, but has something special about them, they want to encourage that person and like foster that person and encourage that person to get better and grow. And that's part of the show that's really charming and fun. But if you were actually like, this is the thing about like Black Swan with Natalie Portman, right? Where it's like so severe, the pressures that are on these dancers, totally different kind of like hostility that they have to face. And this is the same general profession, but it's at different levels of competition and different kind of environments. Um, and, and I don't want to say that anybody is better or worse than the other because, you know, you, you develop different kinds of work by acting in these different kinds of ways. And, and I think that the art that you produce changes uh, as a result of these I things. Just, I want to point out that we will not be drinking urine at the Overthinking Meetup <laughs> on August. It's not at the Aldrich urine. It was just the most notable thing that I saw. Keep in mind, I only actually got to watch shows between 4 and 5.30 in the morning. I was hanging out with my mom and my sister and some of my friends from high school. I was having a party on Saturday night for my birthday uh, with some friends from college. You know, it's stuff like that. I tried to warn you, you don't know what direction this thing is going to go until it gets away. Don't, don't make promises that you can't keep. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, no. I, I promise there will be, I will disband the site. You will find a 404 notice if you go to Overthinking It, if there is pee drinking at our, uh, at, our, at our meetup. Because well, REM said they would break up at, in the year 2000, you know. And... <laughs> Rather, don't give our fans that sort of power over us. You know they're going <laughs> to inside the bar with jars of urine being like, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to pull the trigger. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, that, that that guy can go next to the guy who posts, you know, this isn't really overthought enough uh, <laughs> in our comments. We invented the niche. So I, I want to pose a question to the panel. If you uh, were suddenly had children of cotillion age now, if you like <laughs> if I if I magicked you into a, a life situation where you had children of cotillion age, would you send them to dance and etiquette classes here in uh, in 2011? Or, uh, you know, is that uh, is that not um, something that you would do? And I'm going to say I, I would because I am I am sentimental and uh, try to be sort of old-fashioned like that. And, like, my, you know, my mother, who was a single mother, was, like, very conscious about raising gentlemen, you know, with her two, her two sons. And that, you know, taught us things about, like, uh, things that I think are, are totally outmoded and, like, are a little uh, maybe intention, uh, you know, with, with equality between the sexes and things like this. Like, things like not just you open doors, but, like, you stand up at a table when a woman stands up or you... Uh, you you always walk on the street side of the sidewalk uh, when you're walking with a woman because a like a horse-drawn carriage could come <laughs> by at any point and like splash, you know, uh, mud, a uh, fetid mud up onto her petticoats. Given these like examples, I think I definitely would because I want to raise my children as sexist as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I got that. I got that uh, hardcore uh, growing up. But uh, I don't know, Zach, I, like, uh, seriously, do you, do you think that you would do that? Is it, like, is it important to, like, raise ladies and gentlemen? I, you know, I, I guess if I, if I had to make the call on that, I, I think probably I would want them to be exposed to it and to understand what it would be like if that was the world that they lived in, but not try to get them to live in that world. Right. I mean, it, it, it has always been important to me to not ever uh, sort of dismiss any particular facet of culture out of hand. Right. Like to try to at least understand even the things that you're pretty sure you're not going to you're not going to like or not going to stick with. It's just kind of part of being part of being well-rounded, I think, is is at least understanding what what those those sort of like bits of etiquette would be if they were a thing. That's fair. I, I don't think I would just because for two reasons. One, I'd be I'd be too busy teaching them how to kill people with their bare hands. And, <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And and second, I so, so to get a little personal, I think I think obsessing that much over particular ways to behave in different social situations can make someone neurotic. And I've noticed that I've noticed tendencies in that about myself, especially as I get older. And I, I wouldn't want to pass that on to my kids. I wouldn't want to drill in them a series of instructions like, all right, if you're in this situation, you have to do this. If you're in this other situation, you have to do that. I, I think that would just encourage the, the worst sort of, I guess, self-critical, highly self-conscious tendencies. I want I want kids who get out there and screw things up. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I, I might do it. Uh, one of the ancillary benefits of it is that it, it 
there are so many obscure rules that that uh, bring you that they bring you awareness of things that you might not realize affect people. Like like the walking on the street, for example. I don't know if the alternative is like oh, you know. We either walk someone down the street or like without any sort of sense for how we should do it or we do it in this really sexist way. Maybe the important lesson is like, huh, when you walk down the street, like people encounter things and people have different experiences of walking down the street. And when you're walking down the street with somebody, you should kind of be aware of their experience of walking down the street too and, and, uh, and see that as, as a way in which you're interacting with them and, and can, uh, can, can do things for them if you want to. I don't know. Um, Getting yourself in the mode of thinking about the things that are, that are actually practical is kind of handy too. Because, you know, going – if you – so a lot of my friends and girlfriends have been left-handed. And so just getting into the habit of, all right, if you're going to a restaurant and you're right-handed and the person that you're with is left-handed, you know, where do, where do you sit and where do they sit? And like getting in the mode of thinking about that kind of thing, just, you know, it's, it's like not a big deal. But like people appreciate it when you're thoughtful, right? So – yeah, you know. So where do you sit when someone is sitting? That I don't remember actually. Well, they, you want them on your left because otherwise you're going to be banging elbows the whole time that you're eating, right? So you 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 keep your eating arm far away from their eating arm. Mm-hmm. So that's nice. it's like purely that. a pragmatic concern, but it is but it is it is in the in the sort of dress of a of a manner, right? It, it's it's uh, it, you could just take that same way that you treat a, a piece of etiquette. When it's just like, all right, well, this is a thing. We're getting ready to sit at a table. What's my checklist here? All right, put them there. So I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe maybe there. It, it, it is interesting trying to trace back the the origins of all of that kind of stuff because a lot of it is like, you know, this is why these bolts on the space shuttle are the width that they are. It's because of the 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 you know chariot tracks in Rome, and you know, this is why there's a. This is the apocryphal story about why there's a basketball court on the Matterhorn because some building couldn't be taller than some other building. Um, <laughs> really, think back to some, some aristocratic thing. Yeah. Anyway, Cotillion. <laughs> oh man! And now we have the parade of roses. So wait, so so how was the Glee movie then? Uh, did, I mean, because the Glee Glee has this sort of social choreography all its own. That's sort of actual Glee, choreography. Well, so the Glee movie was was relentlessly upbeat, and even you know, like, <laughs> just wanted it to get real for a second. Yeah, right. like, <laughs> even like even uh, even some the tensions on the shows between characters. I mean, just the tensions inherent in plot were nowhere to be. Um, to be seen. Look, I, you know, early on in Glee, I think I tweeted, uh, and I, I excuse myself immediately, but I, I think I tweeted something about, um, how, how can this be a show about, like, uh, individuality when e- every song sounds like a, a homogenized Backstreet Boys cover, you know? Uh, <laughs> that, you know, they, they have that highly compressed, you know, pitch-corrected, um, pop sound and the whole no matter what the style of song is like the whole concert is like that and and they're dancing so damn much um uh, like it must be a challenge for the fat ones to say stay fat uh they're dancing so damn much i mean there's so much energy so many calories are being <laughs> expended by the performers in the course of of uh making the thing that the you know that the imperative that they they maintain their body shape must be actually kind of hard to uh you know, hard to to live up to, but um, it it was just this uh, it, you know, it's this kind of celebration of uh, what of of different people, and so they have like they have a cheerleader, just this adorable cheerleader who happens to be a dwarf, like a little person, uh, who, who is uh, like a featured interview. They have a a kid who was who was outed against his will in middle school and harassed a lot. As an interview, they have um, uh, you know three or four more, and they intersperse these interviews in with the the songs. The message in every case being that like Glee gave me the strength to to uh, be proud of be proud of who I am, be proud of the individual that I am, um, and uh, you know and and like I think that's I I think that's great uh, of of I guess of things that that kids could be into. You know, I, I suppose there are worse ones than than this. But at, at the same time, I'm kind of troubled by how how bland the artistic vision is, given given that it gestures at this kind of 
huge massive of humanity and how kind of multiple and and sort of awesome in its diversity uh humanity can be uh in terms of uh what in terms of sexual orientation in terms of life experience in terms of body shape uh in terms of uh disability status right like uh the the fact that that everything sounds like the backstreet boys um, and that that it is this kind of gray on beige uh relentlessly upbeat um, you know kind of worldview is is a little i don 't know it 's a little disappointing because like given the given the subject matter that they 're gesturing towards uh it could be it could be so much more. Well, I might be alone in the in in your listenership and not really knowing anything about Glee, but I, my my impression was: is it not? Are, are all of the songs original? Is it not a thing like the sort of uh, like Moulin Rouge, where where it's just pop songs and stuff? Well, it's not. Well, I, yeah, but it's not just pop songs. I mean, it's you know, this is where like uh, I'm a slave for you can coexist with um, uh, with Journey or with, you know with. Uh, uh, somebody to love, or you know, I don't know any of those songs that have gotten. So like, yeah. it's it's sort of it, it's sort of like funnels all kinds of of popular music, rock, uh, hip hop, you know, bubblegum pop, all, and it all comes out sounding like bubblegum pop. Um, it, no matter how no matter how awesome the song was to begin with, they, well, rather, they, yeah, that's that's kind of a kind of a synecdoche for pop music as a whole because pop music takes rock influences, it takes uh, Latino and Hispanic music, it takes urban hip hop music, it takes you know very very structured. Uh, very structured studio sound and, you know, bluegrass and a little bit of country. And it blends it all into one easily accessible, you know, unthreatening format. That's that's the beauty, quote unquote, of pop music. So that's that's sort of what Glee is is emulating. Sure. I guess. I, I mean, I guess I sort of think of, uh, I don't know, my like er pop musician is Madonna. Right. Is it uh, does that make sense? And like there, there was still kind of an edge, or there was still a uniqueness to a lot of stuff that Madonna did, though. Though, well, though a lot of it, I mean, the greatest hits, a lot of it is is pretty forgettable, forgettable, honestly. But like, uh, th- there was still a kind of, <coughs> I don't know, there was still a kind of vision behind it. There was still a kind of individuality to it, right? And and the kind of the the uh, the blandness, the the idea that we're making sort of entirely fungible product, the idea that one song is pre- there's still a difference between songs with Madonna, you know what I mean? The idea that one song is more or less uh, equivalent to another is um, uh, I don't know is 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 a little dispiriting, and I, I I don't mean to be down on it. I, I I like actually had a good time. It was very relentlessly upbeat. Though I, I will tell you something that happened in the theater. Like we went to a, a sort of a late showing that was sparsely populated and, and was mostly, you know, was mostly grown-ups, was mostly old people. But like in the very back row of the theater was like half a dozen tweens or teenagers. They were like 14 or something. And they were very badly behaved uh, before the movie, which was, which was awesome. They were like talking back to the previews and like, you know, to, that sucks, everything, you know. And... It, um, uh, it, it was it was glorious, and then a uh, like a, a, a middle aged woman, uh, <laughs> you know, who was sitting a few rows in front of them, stood up and said something like, "All right, you are all going to just have to be quiet now. You are all going to have to be quiet right now." And uh, I looked at my girlfriend, and she was looking at me in horror, like, uh, uh, because, like, this is their movie. It's not your movie. <laughs> you know, you're an interloper. And, and the fact that we're all kind of here is actually a little bit creepy, I guess. But th- this, this should be something that... Um this should be something that they can kind of come to and like be a little bit rowdy at and uh you know and and misbehave and in the way that 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 teenagers are are obnoxious and i think it says something about you know the glee phenomenon uh, it says something about manners you know and etiquette uh that that their behavior was kind of forcibly homogenized into an acceptable standard rather than being uh, uh you know i don't know rather than being sort of allowed to well, maybe they just didn't. Maybe they just didn't have any stones. Because well, I suppose Matt, I suppose they, it is the yeah. Up? Sorry, did did they shut up? Yes, they did. They had no stones. 
Oh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, it, it, well, I mean, they're Glee fans, so come on. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, are you a Glee fan? Do you have anything to say about Cotillion, about uh, dancing, about <laughs> manners and etiquette, um, about uh, the movies that we saw, uh, about um, the overthinking at Meetup in New York on August 24th? Uh, in Tribeca, uh, check the the uh, Facebook page for that about the experimental uh, same room podcast. Um, then uh, write us over. Uh, it's podcast at overthinking it dot com. It's twenty fat jog zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. We're overthinking it uh, on the twitters where you can. Um, uh, where you can, you know, tweet us your haiku reviews of things. Those those have been, I guess there weren't time for them uh, this week, but th- those have been great. Uh, you can uh, you can always join us on the comments on the show notes where really interesting discussions happen. And uh, until next week when we deliver an experimental podcast. Um, we're, oh, we're also coming up on the three-year anniversary of the podcast, so uh, let us know what you think we should do. Uh, for that, uh, if anyone says overthink, overthinking, I'm going to punch you at the overthinking at meetup. We're not going to overthink, overthinking. We're we're going to like I don't know, make a cake or something. Or um, hey, look at the overthinking at Twitter feed. Someone crocheted the overthinking at logo. Uh, Otis, we call him. Someone crocheted Otis and has these incredible artisanal uh, little Otis patches. I'm going uh, to art- art- artisanal, <laughs> artisanal Otis <laughs> <patches>. artesian. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think you should offer that, that very talented yarn artist a lot of money uh, for your own Otis patch. That's certainly what I intend to do. Uh, until the next podcast. Uh, oh, and thanks. Thanks also to special guest Zach. Uh, Zach Johnson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, maybe, uh, maybe now, that, uh, now that you're on and you're under the gun, maybe I can convince you to come on regularly. You know, every couple months, every six weeks, every month or something like that. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Nicely evaded, sir. Um, until next podcast, you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Wow, we got nothing. Well, okay, so, so, okay, so there's a, so there's Glee, right? And there's a concert, and the movie is just them in concert. Like, it's not like, oh, we have to do this concert, and also there are diamond smugglers somewhere in the audience. We have to stop them from sneaking diamonds out of the country. No, it's That's just them. It's, it's two people, 3D movie. Uh, two people, my girlfriend and me. 30 bucks for a movie. That's not very. That's not very gleeful at all. Yeah, no. and, and then there were kids yelling, <laughs> and then there were kids yelling, and the fat middle-aged woman was me.